as they go to the back. Um, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. If you're watching online, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, this morning, we are continuing and jumping back into our Remembrance series. Um, this is a very, very interesting time in the life of the Worldwide Church. Um, we come through Easter season, which we celebrate the resurrection, Jesus is alive. Um, and then for most of us who are Protestants or maybe Evangelical or Anabaptist, we kind of just go through, go through, go through, and then you get Pentecost, you know, like the day of Pentecost. But what's interesting in the worldwide church is that this in-between uh, resurrection or Easter and, and Pentecost is this season they call Eastertide. And what I love about Eastertide is that it, it's continual celebration of the resurrection. We celebrate that Jesus is alive. We celebrate that, that life conquers death. We celebrate that sin and, and death has been destroyed forever. And, and in Pentecost, we get to celebrate that the kingdom is here and that the spirit brings life and joy. But what's cool about Eastertide is that before you get to East, before you get to Easter, you go through Lent. And Lent is 40 days of solemn reflection, you know, reconciliation, redemption, and it's 40 days. But Eastertide is 50 days of celebration. So Lent is 40 days of fasting, and, and Eastertide is, is 50 days of feast. So never let anyone tell you that the old church mothers and old church fathers didn't know how to party, right? Like they struggled through Lent for 40 days, and then they had a party, a celebration of Eastertide that was 50 days. And why this, this area is really, really important is because they wanted to not just remember, oh, Jesus is risen, but they wanted to remember. And I think that's the invitation for us too, especially this time of year, The light doesn't triumph over dark. They wanted to remember that life wins over death. And they wanted to remember that Christ is risen. Paul in his letter to the Romans reminds us in Romans 8, 11, right, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that now lives in you. That's what Eastertide is about. Not just that Jesus is risen, that's amazing, but that even right now, light always conquers dark. Life always conquers death. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in you and calls you to do God's work. So for this Eastertide, we're going to get back to remembrance. If you remember before Lent, you know, we had a remembrance series where we focus on the God of the Old Testament, how he calls us to remember. Now we'll focus on the God of the New Testament and how he calls us to remember. Because I believe that remembering how God has been revealed to us is a gift that God gives to his people. Throughout the scriptures, you'll see a God who's revealing himself to his people, a God who wants to be known. That's why God reveals himself, because he wants to be known by us. In scripture, God continually calls his people to remember. And I think that's because we're so quick to overlook and maybe even sometimes forget that God is with us now. We're so quick to, to overlook the fact that, that God has been faithful in the past or that God promises to be faithful in the future or that God is actually whatever we're going through, whatever we're struggling with, whether it's an addiction or an affliction, whatever we're struggling with, whether it's a hard problem or a terrible situation, whatever we're going through, you know, the British says in it, you know, God is in it with us now. And that's the promise of God, that I will be the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, but never forget I'm the God who's with. I'm the God who's with you now. That's the joy of Emmanuel. It's not just Jesus came and became a baby. It's that God promises to be with us in it now. And so as we're going through and knowing that we're quick to, to overlook or forget that God's here, I think part of the reason is because it's so easy for us to look down at ourselves and our situation instead of looking up. It's so easy for us to look at the now and the present instead of remembering how God's been faithful in the past and remembering the promises that he'll be faithful in the future. 
So this idea to remember forces us to look back on his faithfulness, to hold on to him holding on to us, and to look forward to his future love, mercy, compassion, grace that he has for us. Another thing that helps us to remember isn't just the scriptures and the scripture stories, though that would be enough. But another thing that helps us to remember is what? Our lives. We would do well to always work into our own spiritual growth, just times to think and to reflect on what God has done. Just time to think and reflect on, on how God has moved in your life, how God has worked in your life, how God has come through when no one else could come through. It does us well to reflect on God's faithfulness in the past because when we reflect on it, we hold on to it. When we hold on to it, I guarantee you it'll build our faith for tomorrow and it'll get us through today. We need time to reflect that because God shows up. And if we know God shows up, guess what? It'll be a little bit easier to trust him to keep showing up. So when we talk about remembrance, we're going to use some basic, you know, what they call the journalistic questions, right? Who, what, when, why, where, how? And when we look at this God of the New Testament, we'll do the same thing we did before. So this morning where we will hear God say, remember who I am. And Jesus will make this bold statement that I am Yahweh God, which is a very bold statement that led to people wanting to actually kill him. But we'll also look at remember what Jesus has done or remember how God and when God has saved, why God has saved, and, and where God has saved us. But this morning, we're going to go back to this, this raging argument where in the midst of these people who wanted to kill him, Jesus makes perhaps his boldest statement in all of Scripture that I don't just come from the God of the Old Testament, that I don't just identify with the God of the Old Testament, but that I am, that I am the God of the Old Testament. If your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 48 to 59. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn there, but we'll also have them up front so you can follow as well. John 8, 48 to 59, starting at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much. We give our praises, we give our worship to you. For you are indeed the one who was, the one who is, and the one who will be, and the one who's with us now. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, the Lord who's been so faithful in all of our lives, the one who promises to not only be working in our present and working for our good, but the one who promised to be in it with us now. 
So God, we hold on to your promises, the promises you have made because you are worthy of all our praise. You're not only the promise keeper, but you're our good, good savior, lover of our souls. So Lord, we bless you and we pray now for your Holy Spirit's guidance. Holy Spirit, help us to hear from you. Help us to be knit together as one. Help us to be inspired not only by your word, but by the call to do your work. For the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that now lives in us, your children, and the same power that compels us to live and love like Jesus lived and loved. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Over the last several years, I found myself really fond of reminding Christians, you know, um, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I don't give this argument to you very much. You know, I try to plead to your humanity, right? But when I talk about immigration, for example, I like to remind Christians, those who claim to follow Jesus, that there's more in the Bible that says that we should love, welcome, and make room for the immigrant, the alien, the stranger among us than even the fact that Jesus is God. There's more about loving the immigrant. I don't care what your political party says. I really don't care what your nation says. I only care what your Bible says and what your God says. And if you go by those two things, there's way more in Scripture to say that you should love the immigrant, right? And then make room for the immigrant than even Jesus is God. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God. The point I'm making is that we take very seriously that Jesus is God. But we need to also take seriously that we should love our neighbor as ourselves or love our neighbor as Jesus loved. But if you want a clear definition or a clear statement of Jesus being God, John chapter 7 and 8 gives that to us. Now, you have to remember who John is. It took us a couple years, but we, we pointed out uh, going through 1 John that John was probably the person who knew Jesus best on this earth. John is Jesus' best friend. And you, the part of the proof is you know that they, the rest of the disciples and all the followers of Jesus, actually allowed him to keep in the scripture that like, oh, John, the one Jesus loved, right? Like there was a special relationship between John and Jesus. Like if I was there, I'd be like, the one Jesus loved and Hank. But that's just me. You know, I got to work through some of my pride issues. But I'd be like, you can't be the only one. He loves us all, right? He's God, right? But they allowed that to be there because they wanted to signify that special relationship. And part of the bond you see in that special relationship is when Jesus is dying on Calvary's tree. Remember, Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, but he knew in his culture as the oldest son, it was his job to take care of his mother, right? So he looks around and while he's dying, he says, John, look at Mary, behold your mother. Mary, look at John, behold your son. So John and Jesus had this really special relationship, the relationship that I believe that God wants and Jesus wants all of us to have with him. But it's this John who speaks, and John, more than all the other Gospels, and I think, you know, I haven't counted it, but I think you can count up all the other verses in the other Gospels where they talk about the, the deity of Jesus. John trumps them all. John says it more and more because he wants you to know that this one in whom there was no sin, this one who is indeed God, is the one who's come for you. John keeps pointing us back to the deity of Jesus. And in chapter 7, Jesus boldly reveals that he is God. Now, one of the things that's interesting interesting uh, are good for us to hold on to in this passage is that it's the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. This was one of three pilgrimages. I thought this was really, really beautiful. This is like the super Bible nerd in me. Like two people appreciate this, so the rest of you just go with me and smile and say, yeah, you know, maybe even throw in an amen. I think you appreciate it, but I think this is really cool. So there was three different pilgrimages, right? The first one was what we now, well, even now, like was Passover. So it's kind of what we went through right before Easter, where they celebrated, you know, God has taken us out of Egypt. He passed over us. This is a great celebration. 
The second one was what we now call Eastertide, or what they would call the, the, the fast festival or feast of the tabernacles, right? And then the third one was what we now know as Pentecost. And I think it's very, very cool, again, two of us will appreciate this, that, you know, as we now begin Eastertide, John 7 is the same time uh, that Jesus is in. Jesus is in this Eastertide season, just like we're now in this Eastertide season. We've come through you know, Passover and Easter. We're looking forward to, to May and Pentecost, right? But it's in between Eastertide. That's what's going on. Why is this important? Because these are three pilgrimages, which meant that God's people from the entire known world were all congregating to Jerusalem. I want you to remember that when Jesus makes this bold statement, it's not at like a backyard barbecue, right? It's not with like a few family and friends. This is one of the three times of year that Jerusalem would have been packed with people from all around the world. And I want us to remember the boldness of our Christ. A lot of us, at least for me, when I think about the fact that people wanted to kill Jesus, I go all the way to Calvary. But what John 7 reminds us is that from the very beginning, they wanted to kill him. From the very beginning, Jesus was preaching a different message, and he had enemies who wanted to kill him. And I'm reminded of the boldness of our Jesus, that it's not just on Passover that he rides into town ready to go to the slaughter, but it was also at the Feast of the Tabernacles that he rides into town looking at his enemies who want to kill him and boldly proclaims, I am that I am. I'm the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be. I'm the God who's with you now. And this reminds me of for thousands of years now of people who've willingly given their lives for the kingdom, of sisters and brothers around the world who are facing oppression and even death. And they walk into it with a boldness because they learned it from Jesus that we are not to fear death, that we're not to fear enemies and opposition and anything that's against us. For the no weapon formed against us will prosper, and even in death we can have life. Jesus' boldness must be held on to because we serve a courageous Savior. He knew they wanted to kill him, and he so proclaimed and made maybe, maybe his boldest statement in all of his lives when Jerusalem is packed with all these people. And in the tabernacles, they would also celebrate, you know, the harvest. And I love that because there's this people, you know, I'm not a farmer, but I guess you plow until the ground, right? You plant it, you water it, and you hope everything works out. But they celebrated the harvest, which I think is a reminder to us to open our eyes or ask the Spirit to open our eyes to actually celebrate our blessings, to celebrate everything that God has given you now. I think that should be part of not just your normal, everyday spiritual growth, but that should be part of your every single day to stop. You got 24 hours. You can at least take 30 seconds to say, God, thank you for life. God, thank you for breath. God, thank you for this job. God, thank you for people who love me. God, thank you for being there. You can give them 30 seconds to say, God, thank you for this harvest. But they would also celebrate during the Feast of the Tabernacles in this Eastertide season, they would also celebrate the Exodus. That is their greatest moment of salvation where God reached down into Egypt, pulled his people out, and brought them into the promised land. So not only do we need to daily thank God for our harvest and our blessings, we must never forget Calvary's tree. And we must also make it part of our spiritual discipline and our everyday to say, God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you for rescuing me from sin. God, thank you that I was dead and separated from you, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been brought near, I have been forgiven. 
forgiven, I have been set free. That's what we celebrate this Eastertide season. So before we get to Pentecost, I want you to pledge to God, not to me, but pledge to God that every single day you're going to say, God, I thank you for my blessings, and I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and I thank you for all you've done for me. And as Jesus is, is coming into town doing this, this tabernacle season, you have these leaders, these chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees who were looking to kill him. Yet he still boldly walked into town. He boldly went on their ground to not just argue with them, but to assert who he was. Last month we were talking about Easter and, and building up to the cross and after the cross. You know, I think I mentioned in a couple of different settings on Monday, Thursday, and I think on Easter Sunday that, that betrayal can only come from people who know us, right? If you don't know me, you can't betray me. You can hurt me, but you can't betray me. Betrayal has to come from people we know. And the more we know someone, the deeper the betrayal seems. I think there's so many of us who see Judas as the ultimate betrayal. And I think we can give Judas a little bit of grace because even though he was wrong, he was trying to force something that wasn't his to force, right? He wanted this Messiah to do something and to show up. But what John 7 reminds us is that Jesus suffered many betrayals, even before Judas, even before Peter. Because in John 7, his own brothers, his own kin, his own family who he had grown up in front of, they too reject him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. I want us to hold on to that because Jesus knows betrayal from people who knew him the most. And I think that's something some of us can resonate with maybe, but I think all of us need to remember that Jesus is suffering and holding all these things as he marches into town on the Feast of the Tabernacle with siblings and, and, and brethren and kin who are saying, that like, well, if you're really God, why don't you just go preaching? And, you know, they, they won't really kill you if you're really God. All these people who are questioning him, and yet he still goes into town. And on this Feast of the Pentecost, he's teaching, and people are learning. He's healing, and people are being saved. And, and, and his opponents look at him, and they're like, well, obviously he's demon-possessed, because that's where his power's from. Obviously, that's what it's got to be. Because they looked around, and as Jesus taught, they saw people not only learning, they saw people believing. As Jesus kept preaching and doing these miracles, they learned that maybe he wasn't just a prophet, but maybe he is indeed the Messiah. In John 7, John is showing and retelling this story about how Jesus is boldly revealing that he is God. By the time we get to John 8, right, it's almost like the old movie theaters or even like regular theaters when the curtains open, the whole show's in front of you. So John 7 is like the preview where John is like, look, he's revealing he's God. But when we meet Jesus in John 8, it's not just by revealing he's God. Jesus himself asserts that he is indeed God. The chapter begins with the story of the woman caught in adultery, a story that I always found funny ever since I was a kid. It's like, how do you catch the woman in adultery but not the man? That's a separate conversation. We can talk about that on your own time, right? Buy me lunch, we can talk about that, right? But they catch this woman in adultery. And what I love about this story is that Jesus shows he's God because not only can he forgive sin, 
Not only does he say, you know what? I want the one who's without sin to cast the first stone. Not only does he preach accountability, but he promises and teaches redemption. Remember what we said about redemption? It's shuv, right? It's this idea of if you're going the wrong way, turn the car around, go back home, get some fuel, and then go on your right way. So when he tells that lady, go and sin no more, it's redemption he's preaching. He's not saying it's okay that you've sinned and fell short. He's saying that I will not hold that against you. I forgive you. Now turn your life around. And that should be the message of all of us. We should be preaching redemption the way Jesus preaches it. And he shows that I'm God because I have power to forgive sin. But I'm also God because I have power to redeem and give you a new life and a new future and a new calling. And that's just the first quarter of the chapter. Then he moves on to assert that he is indeed the light of the world. He says, man, all of you are in darkness, but praise God he sent me because I am indeed the light of the world. And back and forth in 7 and 8, Jesus has this thing going with them where he keeps saying, I'm from the Father. I'm of the Father. I've been sent by the Father. And the reason those three are important is because if Jesus is saying, I'm of the Father, he's telling his opponents what? They're not of the Father. (laughs) If Jesus is saying, I'm from the Father, he's telling his opponents what? You're not from the Father. And if Jesus says, I'm empowered by the Father, he's telling them what? You are not empowered by the Father. And in John 7 and 8, you'll find maybe the most incendiary verses that Jesus ever says to people. Because he says, you either belong to the Father, God our Father, or you belong to your father, the devil. You're either from God or you're from devil. Jesus makes it fairly black and white. No navigating the gray here. Either you belong to me or you belong to Satan. Pretty straightforward. And and you can see that during this whole conversation, these two chapters, it's ramping up, it's ramping up. And there's some terrible things that are said. One I missed for years is, you know, one of the leaders actually said to Jesus, well, at least we know who our father is. And I missed that. Because I just looked at it theologically. I'm like, are they talking about Father Abraham? No, 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 no. They're attacking Jesus' virgin birth. They're saying, they're like, oh, you're supposed to be all special, right? You did the virgin birth. We know who our daddy is. It's either Father Abraham or God the Father, but we also know our earthly father. So they're not only coming after him. This is a very personal attack. And Jesus, in the midst of all this, argues that, yeah, I'm not only of the Father, you are not. Abraham, who you lift up as your father, he worshiped me. Jesus shows that he's aligned with the Father. And his opponents, their only, only response is to say, well, you must be demon-possessed. You must be a Samaritan. So if you're following and tracking along, they've attacked Jesus personally by saying, you and your mother are liars. There is no virgin birth. They've attacked Jesus' lineage by saying, how can you be a prophet if you're not even really a full Israelite? You're a Samaritan. They've attacked Jesus' message by saying, how can you be the Messiah when you're clearly demon-possessed? This is what's happening in this chapter, and it's a raging debate, and with all this crowd in the city and these people who want Jesus to be killed. Yet in the face of all of this, Jesus doubles down by saying, you know in your own law, that everyone in charge has these agents and the agents go forward from them. And that agent represents them. So that's why Jesus keeps coming back to the Father, telling them that, like, I'm from the Father. And if I'm from the Father and you disobey me, you're disobeying the Father. 
If I'm from the Father and you don't believe in me, you don't believe in the Father. And we don't really have that context in our culture. The closest I can come up with is maybe in the feudal times a couple hundred years ago, like when the king said something and they would give you like a ring or something and put the signet ring on it and you had to obey it because that person represented the king. It's the same kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, I am the Father's agent. I am the Father's chosen messenger. To reject me is to reject the Father. To reject me is to reject life. It's to reject light. And that is why they, they amp up their argument by saying, wait a second, how are you saying that you can give life just by obeying you? One, you're not even 50 years old. Two, Abraham is our father, not whatever you're talking about. And even Abraham and the prophets die. What are you saying? And Jesus says, listen, I glorify God who glorifies me. And when I read that this week, kind of shifted something in me because I'm like, man, what if that's what we could all say about one another? What if people who know us look at our lives and they say, she glorifies God, that's why God has glorified her. What if all of us can have people in our lives who look at us and say, wow, he glorifies God, that's why God glorifies him. Jesus puts that as the standard, I glorify God who glorifies me. And then he says, I know God, you do not. Abraham, who you call father, he saw this day was coming. And, and then so now they've gone after his, his parentage. They've gone after his lineage. They've gone after his ministry. And finally they say, you know, slow down. You know, in my culture, in Liberian culture, we do a really good job with this English language of butchering it, right? We don't finish any word, right? So we have this thing where the old people say, wait now. And it's basically the equivalent of wait now, right? In this culture, it'll be like, slow down. You're too big for your britches. Slow down, relax, take it easy, right? They're like, Jesus, slow down. Wait now. You're not even 50 years old. In our culture, if you want this kind of stature, you got to reach 50 years old. You're not even there. And then Jesus says, oh, <laughs> you think 50-something. Well, before Abraham was, I am. And we have to pause here because it's easy to read that and be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a cool little play on the English. Maybe in the Greek it's kind of cool. But the very next verse tells us what? They were ready to pick up stones to stone him. Which if we take a step back, it means like, what is Jesus saying that right now, we know they wanted to kill him before, but they're at least willing to argue with him. But now he makes this statement and they want to kill him then and there. What has shifted? What has happened? What's happened is Jesus has gone from saying, I identify with the God of the Old Testament to I am the God of the Old Testament. Jesus has gone from saying, I know the God of the Old Testament to I am the God of the Old Testament. Jesus identifies with what the uh, Jewish people understood as Echia. The name of God that means I will be, I am, I'm the one who is, the one who was, and the one who forever will be. And Jesus in saying I am is saying to these people, you think you scare me because you can kill me? You think you scare me because you know my own scriptures better than me? You think you scare me because you think you know the Father better than me? No, my existence doesn't depend on anything or anyone because I am forever. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was, the one who is, the one who will be. I am. And we have to hold that for a second because what Jesus is boldly professing to these people is that I am the God you worship or you should be worshiping and you've missed me. And I love that as part of this understanding, it's not just I was, I am, I will be, but it's that whatever God has shown himself to be, I am. 
So Jesus is saying, if God pulled you out of Egypt, I did that. If God has shown himself as merciful, I am that. If God has shown himself as justice, as loving, as compassion, as mercy, and as grace, I am all of those things. There's a classic writer, A.W. Tozer, who really helped me tease this out. He says, one of the things that makes us human is that we're parts of a whole. One of the things that makes God God is God is perfectly whole. God isn't, you know, 25% love, 5% justice, you know, 16% mercy, 12% compassion. No, God is 100% love. 100% justice, 100% mercy, 100% compassion. God is perfectly whole. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not only the God of your ancestors, I'm the God who's always been there. But why is all of this significant for us? Well, the first one is I think Jesus is telling them and us, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus in Genesis 1 and 2, present in the creation. God says, let us make mankind in our image. Jesus is present there. We read in our scripture reading in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the Lord of all creation, that everything that's ever been created was created by him, for him, and through him. Before Abraham was, Jesus was. And so the challenge to all of us, you know, when we did this before, we said, you know, maybe you should ask um, People in your family, if you could, right? Like, like how God worked in their lives or how God worked in your life even before you were born. So now with Jesus, I want you to do this. And this will be a little bit harder for some of us who may be a little bit older and wiser, right? But I want all of you this week to think about maybe one person you know who's been a Christian longer than you have, right? And I want you to go to that person and just ask them this simple question. Who is Jesus to you? Because I think there's a wisdom we learn, not only from people who've come before, but there's something really beautiful about people who faithfully follow God for decades upon decades upon decades. I get a joy when I meet someone who's followed Jesus longer than I've been alive. It's not only humbling, it's invigorating, right? So go to them and ask this simple question, who is Jesus to you? And I'm hoping that in that question, you'll learn that before you were, Jesus was. Before you took a breath, God was working. Before you even knew this person who you now trust because they've been following Jesus. Jesus was with them, preparing them to help you. Before Jesus was, before you were, Jesus was. I almost said before you was, which would have made me real Harrisburg, which is fine, right? Before you was, Jesus was. We'll go with it. Put on a t-shirt. The second thing I want us to hold on to, too, is that Jesus is before Abraham is. We have this understanding of Emmanuel, God, with us. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice and Jesus a greater disservice of only remembering that during, during um, uh, a Christmas, right? That Jesus comes down as a baby and he's with us. For Jesus is still with us. Jesus is with us, not just as a baby in a manger, but he's alive and with us now. That's the promise of Jesus. And what I love about this is that even before Abraham was, or even before Abraham comes to be, before Abraham is, Jesus was. Because remember, before he was Abraham, he was Abram. And when he was Abram in Genesis 15, God is going to make this covenant and promise to him forever. And what does Abram do? He falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, as we talked about covenant, one of the marks of covenant was sacrifice. So they split the animal, and what they would do is they would walk a path. The two people agreeing to the covenant would walk with like a sideways eight, right? If that doesn't make sense, think of the infinity symbol. That's where it comes from, because you're pledging the loyalty forever, right? And if you go back to Genesis 15, you'll see there's two presences of God that walks through that covenant with Abram. The first one is a, a fire pot, and the second one is a blazing torch. Why does God need to show up twice? Because it's the 
father and the Jesus walking through that covenant with Abram. So before Abram could become Abraham, Jesus is there. And I love that because it reminds us that no matter what we're suffering, no matter what we're facing, no matter how hard our situation is, no matter what we don't understand, God is with us now. God is with us now. God promises to be with us now. And then this last one, Jesus will be even after Abram had been. In the Great Commission, Jesus has this great thing before he goes up on Pentecost, where he goes up and goes back to heaven. And he says, you will be my witnesses in, in locally in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But in the Great Commission itself, he says, I need y'all to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And ever since I was a kid, that seemed really big to me. You know, I'm just like, it's a lot, you know, that's the whole earth, you know, that's pretty big. But what I've held on to is the stories of Christians who've taken up that mantle and are doing that work. But what I've held on personally, what I invite you to hold on personally today, is the second half of that great commission when Jesus says what? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. Never forget that Emmanuel isn't just a baby in a manger. Emmanuel is the God who comes to you in your suffering. Emmanuel is the God who comes to you when you're struggling. Emmanuel is the God who says, no matter what this life throws at you, I will be with you. Holding your hand, guiding you, leading you, loving you, I am here now. Before Abraham could even come and become this great Abraham, God gave him a call and God prepared him for work. And so this Eastertide season, as you're invited to give thanks for your blessings, as you're invited to remember the ultimate blessing of Calvary's tree, I want to invite you to also do this, to ask God, what is the work you're calling me to now? Because if you're still breathing, if you're still on this side of heaven, you have work to do. And then before Abraham can know what the work was, God called him. And I want you this season to go back to God and say, God, what is the work I have left to do? Because I'm going to trust you'll be there in the future, and I'm going to trust you're going to walk with me in the future. We're going to end our service by, by singing a Revelation song. And in this song, I'd like to invite up uh, the worship team as well. I'd like to invite up any pastors in the room. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Or if there's something in the service that moved you and you want a prayer for that, we'd love to pray for you for that as well. But as we sing this song, I just want us to hold on to the simple truth that when God says, I want you to remember that is the work for all of us. When Jesus says, I am, it is not just enough to get him killed, but it's enough to give us life. When Jesus says, I am, you can trust that the God who's been faithful for you in the past is with you now. You can trust that though you don't see it, God is with you working now. And you can trust in every single promise he makes, he will come through because that's who God is. So as we sing this song about worthy is the lamb, right, who was and is and is to come, may we hold on to that, that same precious lamb is our same Jesus Christ. And that same Jesus Christ wasn't just before Abraham or before we were, but that same Jesus Christ is with us now. Let's stand and sing together.